those of us who have kids who have RSD, we know what that's like, right? They're screaming back at you. They're saying nothing will help. It doesn't matter. Everyone hates me. This is the worst thing in the world. I can't believe you're expecting me to cope with this. Of course, I can't cope with this. Those are some of the differences in, I think, how parents come to identify like, oh, something more is going on than a temporary sadness and disappointment. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I am really excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Noreen Russell on a new topic we haven't covered before on the show, and actually one that only came onto my radar last year, and that is rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD, a dysphoria commonly experienced by people with ADHD. Noreen is an expert in ADHD and is the founder of Russell Coaching for Students, which uses an innovative method of coaching for complex students, including those who are 2E, have ADHD, autism, or anxiety, and those with learning differences. She's also the author of the recently published guide for parents asking the right questions before, during, and after your child's diagnosis. In our conversation today, Noreen and I talked about what rejection-sensitive dysphoria is and how it's different from mood disorders or emotional dysregulation. We also talk about what the early signs are and what it might look like to an outside observer and how to support children who have RSD. I'm sure this conversation will resonate with many of you, and I hope you find this new topic interesting and valuable to your family. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Noreen Russell about rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Hey, Dr. Russell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here, actually. Before we get into this topic, which I'm excited because it is a new topic for the show, but I always ask my guests to introduce themselves in their own words. Tell us a little bit about who you are and as part of that, your personal why for the work that you do. So I'm a mom of two children, ages 12 and 14, both neuro atypical, great kids, amazing kids, smart kids have taught me so much about life. They're just great, great kids. My original degree is in developmental psychology. And so I'm not clinical psychologist. I taught at a few different universities for a while. Didn't really find that to be exactly my jam, as they say these days. I did nonprofit work for several years, which I loved. And then when my son was born, um, he was very complicated. And that's when I started the coaching practice, which at the time I kind of thought, oh, coaching is so hokey and unscientific. And that's not what I want to be doing. But 14 years later, I'm really proud of the work that we're doing and the ways that we're helping families especially because there are so many families out there who are hooked into so many different services, but who are still really not getting what they need. And so the coaching model that we have really takes into account what is the science of the various disorders of the kids that we work with, and then what is called for from a scientific 
point of view. So at this point, I would say that I am very proud to be an ADHD and academic coach, but that certainly wasn't the case 14 years ago. Say a little bit more about kind of what's at the core of the work that you do, you know, as a coach working with ADHD and supporting families who are dealing with ADHD. What's kind of at the heart of the way that you approach your work? Almost all of the students at our practice have ADHD. Our particular specialization is that we work with kids who have ADHD autism, and anxiety. Of course, we have other things. You have learning disabilities, you know, you have depression, but almost all of the kids that we see have ADHD. And the niche that we've carved out really is complex ADHD. So it's kids that have ADHD plus one or two more things. And so that might be that they have autism, it might be that they're gifted, might be that they have a mood disorder. But for the last 14 years, we have been working with kids with ADHD. And what we really follow is what the American Academy of Pediatrics says in their 2019 white paper is that multimodal treatment is what's best. And so what I see a lot of is that we take a look at this kid, we see they have ADHD, and we try to throw on all these interventions onto this individual child, whereas really what we need to be looking at is the context around the child. We need to be taking a look at what parent education and training and therapy is happening. We need to be taking a look at what's really happening at school and is it really being effective? And yes, is school so incredibly stretched thin? Yes, 100%. Do they still have a legal obligation to these kids? Yes, they absolutely do. And then, of course, medication is first-line treatment for kids with ADHD. And then skill building is the last part of it. And so that's really the model that we follow. And that's the model that's echoed also by the American Psychiatric Association for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So we don't do anything really revolutionary or out of the box, what we try to do is to apply with fidelity what research and science has already told us works for kids with ADHD, which, as you may already know, entails helping parents to let go of a lot of incorrect information about ADHD. Absolutely. I love that you are also looking at what you refer to as complex ADHD, and I'm thinking like ADHD plus. My hunch is, and I'm curious to know if this is what you've found, but would you say that the majority of people who have ADHD have something else going on? It seems like there's a lot of comorbidities here. No, you're absolutely right. So the estimates are that 30 to 40% of Children diagnosed with ADHD have only ADHD. Now, I would imagine that's an underrepresentation because if you get, for example, a diagnosis from the pediatrician, the pediatrician isn't going to do the learning evaluations. If you get a diagnosis from the neurologist, they're not necessarily going to do the learning things either. And so, what we for sure know 
is that most of the time, well over half the time, a kid who has ADHD also has at least one other thing going on. And for a significant minority of them, they have two or three or four more things going on. My own son is a perfect example of that where we call it, it's the bucket full of diagnoses. He is the epitome of the kid in the syndrome mix. There was a book out several years ago called Kids in the Syndrome. And it was like, okay, what do we do with these kids who have all of these different disorders? And we have to somehow sensitively take a look at how do we create a treatment plan that takes into account all of the different diagnoses and all of the different symptoms that having lots of different psychiatric disorders can create. And it's tough. Yeah, so complicated. I love that bucket full of diagnoses. I've not heard that one before. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this conversation today, because we're actually going to tease out and focus on one diagnosis or one challenge that seems to be pretty prevalent in people with ADHD. But I think people don't have to have ADHD to also have this. And what I'm talking about or teasing is rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is something that only came on my radar a few years ago. I've been reading more about it. It's absolutely something I know affects many listeners of this show and and what's happening with their kids. So just to get started on that topic, could you define what rejection sensitive dysphoria or RSD is? Sure, sure. So the way that people are commonly thinking about RSD right now is that this is a neurological response to some kind of rejection or conflict that is out of scale with what is happening. Now, what's important to keep in mind is that it's out of scale to someone who doesn't have RSD, but it is so real and feels so threatening and so difficult to someone with RSD. And so basically what it's going to look like to someone who doesn't have RSD is it's going to look like an overreaction to not getting invited to the party, or it's going to look like an overreaction to the teacher said you need to work a little harder on this, right? But what it really is, is a neurological reaction that is intense and is frightening and is scary and is very, very real for the person who is having the rejection-sensitive dysphoria episode. And it can happen about any number of things. It can happen because of social situations like I didn't get invited to, you know, this party. And so nobody cares about me. And then that sort of spirals for a couple of hours into really intense negative thoughts about oneself, about one's worth 
wildness. And it looks like from the outside, a complete emotional meltdown about something that, again, from the outside should be able to be handled. But that's not the way the person with RSD is experiencing it. And so it's so important today that we make this differentiation between what does it look like maybe from a parent point of view or from a teacher point of view versus what does it feel like to the person who is having this episode of rejection-sensitive dysphoria. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Clubs on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I've been in conversations with other parents who 
talked about things that seems like their child is just being overly sensitive or, you know, and that this is part of navigating life as a human in this world means you have to toughen up or just not take things so seriously. And I think for many parents, my hunch is there's this initial, and maybe it lasts for a long time, actually, in many parents, this desire to want to explain to their kids, like, you're making a big deal out of nothing, you're gonna have to deal with this. So I'm just curious, what does the trajectory look like? What are the early signs a parent might notice that this is actually RSD? This is something significant? Is it something that a child develops as they become adolescence? Is it something you find in younger children? I think we do see it at all ages. I think that what happens for the most part is that parents go through what is a normal, rational response to seeing an episode of RSD. Oh, you need to learn to cope. You need to learn to toughen up. Let's figure out how to breathe. Let's take some time out. Let's go for a bicycle ride, right? Like you practice all of these good coping skills because what you want as a parent, of course, is for your child to be able to cope with the things that are difficult in life. And we know from the other piece of research that that's very important, that these sort of blips on the horizon, if you will, these challenges, these are the things that create resiliency in many kids, right? Like, oh, I didn't get invited to the party. Oh, okay. I sit and I talk with mom at the counter. You know, maybe I have a cookie or two. Maybe I have some nutritious snack and I talk through, how does it feel? Like, why does it feel so icky that I didn't get invited to this party, this graduation party, this birthday party? And the process of connecting with another person, the process of being listened to, the process of saying, okay, well, what else could we do that evening that might keep you busy and might make you feel better? When that works, then we know that we're not dealing with RSD, right? When the child is just really off the chain for a couple hours and unreachable. And and those of us who have kids who have RSD, we know what that's like, right? They're screaming back at you. They're saying nothing will help. It doesn't matter. Everyone hates me. This is the worst thing in the world. I can't believe you're expecting me to cope with this. Of course, I can't cope with this. Those are some of the differences in, I think, how parents come to identify like, oh, something more is going on than a temporary sadness and disappointment, right? My child is having an extreme reaction to the fact that the teacher looked at them wrong at school, you know, and that there's not a way to cope with or rationalize that. That's the time at which I think we begin to say to ourselves, oh, this is something different going on, but it's not necessarily a mood disorder because it's not happening all the time, right? It's happening in reaction to something. And that's a perplexing part for parents too. Like, well, everything was just fine. And then you know, his sister 
looked at him wrong or said the wrong thing, or we asked him to clean up his room or asked him to put away his food. And all of a sudden there was this extreme reaction that was in response to what would for many children and teens be a typical, we're going to use this word, a typical demand in their day or a typical experience in their day. And just to clarify, because you're talking about demands and later today, I'm interviewing Eliza Fricker about pathological demand avoidance, which is a presentation of autism. And that's something very different. So we're not talking about necessarily the demand itself. We're talking about the way the child interprets or makes meaning out of what someone says to them or what has happened to them or how they perceive that. Right, right. It's really, and this is why I think it's so commonly associated with ADHD, because many times that frontal lobe isn't doing its job in terms of unpacking What is the message really? You know what I mean? And so because that frontal lobe isn't unpacking the message correctly, then we have this extreme emotional reaction that's very, very real to the person. I mean, if there's one thing we want listeners to come away from this show understanding is that this is a real reaction that kids are having. Now, what I think is tricky about this is because there is no diagnosis for this yet. And so when you try to talk to the pediatrician or you try to talk to the psychiatrist or the nurse practitioner about this, you may be the one who's starting to use the phrase rejection-sensitive dysphoria. How much do you know about rejection-sensitive dysphoria? What do you see in other kids who exhibit this kind of knee-jerk, long-lasting in the sense of a couple hours, but not constant like a mood disorder? What do you do? And this is, I think, something that's always important to me is how do we advocate for our children, you know? And part of that is asking your medical provider, have you seen much of this before? What do you tend to do? And I think having the question at the ready, how do you differentiate this kind of what seems to be rejection-sensitive dysphoria from a mood disorder, right? And then what is the treatment for rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And I think asking those questions is really important because the science of these neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders is very much in its infancy. And so because there is no DSM-5 diagnostic category for this, it may be that you're dealing with a medical provider who hasn't really heard of it, who hasn't been to a seminar on it, who doesn't know what they're talking about. And they'll say, well, you know, these kids can be emotional sometimes. Yeah, I'm sure that that is going to resonate with listeners too. And that is challenging, especially because we do often rely on experts to help us help our kids. And we often feel that we 
we're kind of on the front lines of doing this research and identification. It can be challenging. And also, I think a lot of parents feel insecure about their knowledge or speaking up to experts in different areas. So I wanted to ask, you've given a couple examples of the kinds of triggers. And I'm just wondering, you know, you said it could be like a social rejection, not being invited to a party. I imagine that social piece is a big part of it, which is why I'm wondering if it is more prevalent in teens and adolescents. What other kinds of situations could potentially trigger this kind of really strong, extreme response in someone with RSD? You know, really, I think it's anything that feels like rejection. And it's interesting, I think, from a parent point of view, because you can have this extremely loving, extremely kind, extremely thoughtful child, and then certain things, and it can be very individual to the child, come over them. And it's like, wait a second. Now it looks like we're in the middle of a complete meltdown over something that really shouldn't have, in our world, been so difficult, but has been difficult. I know as my son gets older, there are things like, oh, well, he didn't do the laundry right. Oh, God, like, I never want to do laundry again. Like laundry is stupid. I'm never going to learn how to do laundry, you know? And the differentiation here between kind of just a momentary frustration versus the rejection sensitive dysphoria is the length of time and the level of emotion that goes on, right? We all have frustrations for sure. Like we all have frustrations, but what should be cluing a parent into oh, is this something more? Is the level of the response and the length of time of the response? When it takes an hour or two to recover from the fact that the kid down the block didn't want to share the soccer ball as opposed to five or 10 minutes of sadness and, okay, well, let's get the bikes out and do something else. That, I think, is where parents need to start thinking, Is this something else? And then to differentiate that from the mood disorder, where the mood is kind of chronically low or anxious, is important. That there is an identifying triggering event that then provokes an hour or two of rage, self-loathing, low self-confidence. And I'm sure that, you know, if you post this question you'll get all kinds of examples of what it is that provokes that particular child. But from my point of view, I think it is social things. And then often, honestly, it's teacher things. That teacher hates me. That teacher, you open up the the homework at night, that teacher just hates me. And then, of course, there's the parent you know, rejection-sensitive dysphoria. You never like anything I do. Nothing I do is ever good for you. You hate me. You wish I'd never been born. And that can go on and on. And meanwhile, you're thinking the exact opposite. All I asked you to do was clean up, you know, your makeup and your hairbrushes from the counter. I think from a parent point of view, one of the things that's so difficult is it's a little crazy making, right? Right. Because these are 
normal household requests. We won't use the word demands, but these are normal household requests. They're normal household chores. And the response is so extreme that as a thinking, self-aware parent, you're thinking, why, why am I getting this kind of extreme reaction? What did I do to provoke this kind of extreme reaction from, could you please empty the dishwasher? Could you please put your brushes away? Could you please stand the bike up in the bike stand? You know, it could be anything. But when you're seeing that pattern of rage for a couple hours and just inability to calm oneself down, that's when we're talking about what we're calling rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yeah. So what I'm hearing too, is this perceived criticism, like a comment is internalized as criticism. We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. You've talked a lot about this anger, rage response. Are there other kids who just internalize this as self-loathing, shame, self-hatred, and go inward and have that contribute to other things, right? Like depression or other things going on. Do you see that as well? I think we do see that in my experience. It's a little bit less common, but again, my experience is one professional's experience out of thousands. I think there are people who become very anxious people pleasers because they never want to have that kind of rejection experience. And so everything becomes about making the other person happy all the time so that they never get rejected. But the internal core of 
I'm so afraid of rejection that that drives my every move. That's still there, even though it may look less volatile on the outside. The people pleasing mode, I think, is is one possible response. But that one is harder to tease out because, of course, you're not seeing the outward manifestation of it. All you're seeing is whatever you want, whatever it is that you want me to do, like I'll do whatever I'm supposed to do. And that one I think is going to be a little bit harder for clinicians to diagnose. In some ways, it's easier to identify it when it is externalized. Now, sometimes clinicians will call that that intermittent explosive disorder well, maybe it's not intermittent explosive disorder, or maybe the two things will end up being joined in the next DSM, you know, that this intermittent explosive disorder is really rejection dysphoria where the kid feels they've been rejected. And so they're having an explosive rage experience because they feel rejected or criticized in some way. They're not just having rage for no reason. So how do we support kids who have RSD? Is there a specific therapeutic approach or modality that is most beneficial or helpful for kids who are dealing with this? I'm not a physician, so I'm not going to give medical advice. But I do want to point out that on the Attitude website, that there are two possible medication solutions for RSD. The simplest solution is to prescribe an alpha agonist like guanfacine or clonidine. And about one in three people feel relief from RSD at the lowest possible dose of that. Another second treatment, according to Attitude Magazine, is the MAOI. It's an older form of antidepressants, and it can be dramatically effective for both the ADHD and the emotional component. I think what's tough here is we jump to therapy as the solution. But when we are having a neurological response that is so strongly wired into the brain, we also have to take a look at what is it that psychiatric medication can do to help with this. And then maybe there is some therapy. But the reason why things like cognitive behavioral therapy don't necessarily work that well for rejection sensitive dysphoria is because again, we've kind of lost that frontal lobe. You know what I mean? So for many parents, the first line approach is we need to go to therapy and learn some coping skills because this is out of control. But that is not necessarily what is first line treatment. And that's hard for parents. That's good to know. And listeners, I'll share, I know there are several articles on the Attitude website about RSD, and I'll share those in the show notes too. So you can read further about those. Very interesting. I'm kind of mindful of the time. So I want to close this out. Is there anything that we didn't cover about RSD specifically that you think would be really important for parents to know? I think for parents, the challenge is figuring out 
what works for your child, you know, and different things work for different children of different ages. And this feels awful, right? This feels awful. Is there a time period where your child needs to have some rage time? Do they need to kind of work through that in their bedroom or in a chair in the living room and you just let it go, which I find so difficult as a parent. I want to fix it. I want to connect, right? I want to understand the response. I want to process the response. But I think figuring out as a parent, does your child just sort of need that time? Are they flooded with endorphins and they need that time and you can process in a little bit? Is it being in the same room, but not saying much. I know when my son is in an episode like this, you can't say anything. You can't even so much as say, I love you and I'm here for you because the rage is so overwhelming that it just provokes more rage, right? And so can you be in the same room, but quietly be in the same room? And then, and then you watch, right? You watch for the signs of, is he calming down? Does his breathing seem to be slower? And then you say something very empathic. That was really hard. That felt just awful. Let me know if you want to talk about it or if you want a hug. I felt that mad before. And I know how hard it is. You don't necessarily have to say I have RSD too, right? But you can certainly say I have felt that mad before, or I have felt that insecure, or I have felt that criticized and it doesn't feel good. And so let me know when you're ready for a hug or to go for a walk. But I think for parents, it's watching the clues and watching the psychological and the physiological clues of when does the breathing start to calm down? When does the pacing start to slow down around the room? Do you hear the door open a little bit? You have to follow what clues the child is giving you. That's great advice. And I love that reminder to also just our presence, we can help co-regulate, but we can just even being there can be really helpful and supportive. Before we say goodbye, I would love if you can let listeners know how they can connect with you. And I know that you have a new book out called Asking the Right Questions about ADHD before, during and after your child's diagnosis. So can you tell us about that as well? Sure. And you know what? In the second edition of the book, we're going to put a question about RSD. Because just being on your show has made me realize we need to address this. This is something that we need to include in our asking the right questions is what's the difference between a mood disorder and RSD and emotional dysregulation. And so we're keeping a list right now of questions for the second edition. And this will definitely be one. So back to your original question. Our coaching practice can be found at russellcoaching.com, which is R-U-S-S-E-L-L coaching.com. So two S's and two L's. And our phone number is 212-716-1161. I'm not sure anyone calls anyone anymore, but I always say the phone number just because if you have a question 
You can also reach out on my cell phone, which is 813-508-2367. And we're happy to help you. Again, our specialty is middle and high school students who have what we're going to call ADHD plus, complex ADHD. So they have ADHD and they have something else going on. And what we've developed over the past 14 years is a model that tends to be highly effective. Most of our students see dramatic improvements in about a semester. And on the basis of the practice and answering a lot of questions from parents and teaching parents what questions to ask to be an advocate for their kid. We have written a book called Asking the Right Questions Before, During, and After Your Child's ADHD Diagnosis. Because what we've learned is that parents don't know what questions to ask, right? Your kid breaks a bone, you don't really have to ask that many questions, right? They kind of walk you through what's going to happen. We're going to get an x-ray, we're going to get a cast, You're going to go see the orthopedist. The cast is going to come off. You're going to go to physical therapy. There are not that many questions to ask. When it comes to ADHD, there are so many questions that we need to ask. So the book is divided into before, during, and after the diagnosis. And it really is a book that's designed to empower parents to ask questions of the pediatrician, the school, the neurologist, the psychologist, the nurse practitioner, whoever it is that they see. And so the book is divided up into those three sections. We make a suggestion about questions to answer. And then each question has a resource with further information about what you should know about that question when you go in and ask the doctor. Like, does my child need medication? Does my child need a 504 plan in middle school? What should I be looking at when I look at colleges for my kid with ADHD? So it's a very practical, hands-on, short book about what questions to ask when you have a child who potentially or who does already have ADHD. Sounds like such a great resource. And again, listeners, I will have links to Noreen's website, the numbers that she shared, as well as this new book in the show notes page. So definitely go check those out. And Noreen, I just want to thank you. This has been really fascinating conversation. And again, a topic we haven't covered before. So I'm just really grateful that you were able to share with us today and we could learn more about RSD and what a complex, complex thing it is for both kids and parents alike who are dealing with this. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, especially about this topic, which I think is so mystifying for parents. And so hopefully hearing this podcast will help them sort out, is this what we sometimes label as bad behavior or poor coping or mood disorder? Or is this something that we're starting to recognize is a very particular reaction, this rejection-sensitive dysphoria and how do parents identify it and bring it to the attention of their medical and mental health providers. So thank you for having me on. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. 
For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.